The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I command, commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. But if a wife will not cover her head when she, cuts, when she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for a woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, since, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man, now, so man is now born of woman. And all things... Are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that you that if a man wears long hair, it is disgrace for him, but if a woman wears long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage, to understand what's going on here, and Lord, more importantly, to see through this passage how you are leading us into a life flourishing as men and women created to be masculine and feminine, to glorify Jesus Christ together, to make him look great. Father, I pray that you would help us with this, because this passage is difficult and it's confusing, but you intend a clear message to glorify Jesus in our lives together. So I pray you would help us with Jesus. In the name we pray, amen. All right. So we're reading through that, and I'm sure everybody is like, whoo, lights going off. What is going on in this passage? This is crazy. Well, it is all about, this passage is all about this whole category of gender. And gender is a big topic this week in our life today, especially in our culture. I don't know if you would have turned on your news at all, but it is again hitting the news this week. You know, you have... Um, Beto O'Rourke making comments about nonprofits and gender rights and, and uh, gender equality and those things. Um, you had this whole thing going on with um, the LGBTQ community and bathroom rights this last year, right? Gender is just a big, I mean, it's in our conversation as a culture, right? We're constantly talking about it. It is something that is going on in all of our conversations, and it can be a painful conversation for some of us. Um, some of us have ways in which we feel like uh, we don't fit in, right? We're not manly enough or not feminine enough. We don't match, match up. Um, or maybe that has been somehow we have had uh, things said to us that make us feel less than a man or less than a woman, or we don't really understand what's going on. It's not only in the culture, but it's maybe in our hearts and how we think about this. It's not only political, but it's painful. And this passage, I can appreciate, hits us in that context, and it can seem like, man, is Paul just like, like a rank chauvinist, just coming in and just telling women what to do, 
and just like shoving it down our throats, like here's how it's got to be. I don't think that's what's going on in this passage. This passage actually, when we kind of understand what's going on and we kind of get underneath it, there is a lot of Jesus being exposed in this passage to help us to understand what it means to be a man or a woman. This passage actually does, what it does is it takes the gospel and it defines what gender is. It comes in and it confronts our cultural expectations of what gender is. And then Jesus actually, through this passage, empowers us to be men and women who glorify him. So that's what the main point of this passage is. That's what we're going to say. We're just going to kind of land on this main point of this passage is God designed us as men and women to magnify Jesus Christ in our life together. Right? It's that, that's very simple. This passage is all about how does Jesus, how do we magnify Jesus in our life together? Can we throw that at the main point here? This main, the main point, God designed us as men and women to magnify Jesus Christ together in our life together. So this point, this passage will be leading us just basically to say yes to our masculinity and femininity, say yes to what Jesus has designed for us. And so with that said, we're going to dive in. You guys, we're just going to, we're going to jump right in. We're just going to take a big old bite out of the steak or tofu if you're vegan. Uh, The gospel first defines our gender, right? So first point, gospel defines our gender. Verses two to three, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Whoo, man, we, we just like jumping right in, and it's like, what is going on in this passage? First off, I want to just stop and pause and just draw your attention to verse 2. I want to commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions as I delivered them to you. Before Paul gets into correcting them, we saw this at the very beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians. Before Paul gets into correcting them, he commends, he celebrates, he delights in what they're getting right. right? So there was, you can imagine this, in the early days of the church, there was a bunch of teaching going on. Here's what God says to us in Jesus. There's a lot of things that God wants for you to enjoy in your life in him and to confront in your own life and, and walk in. So I just want to note, we can look at 1 Corinthians and say, man, they are just like getting it wrong all over the place. And Paul here just says like, we're walking through his chapters on correcting some things that are going on. He drops down and says, hey, I just want to remember, you're, you guys are doing a great job. You're doing a great job remembering all these things. We just want to address this one thing. We want to kind of drop into this one situation, which is in, in general, just as a guiding principle for us. If we cannot celebrate and enjoy the good things of what's going on in the people around us, it's probably not the best posture to be correcting people. Right? We, want to, we want to correct issues in our lives together. We want to come out of a heart of gratitude and eagerness for what God's doing in our lives and other people's lives. So with that said, we're going to drop here into verse 3 where things get really troubling waters or confusing. But the head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. I'm sorry. The baby distracted me. <laughs> I missed a whole line. But I want you to understand that the head of a man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's only because babies, baby noises are cute. You know, it's just in the middle of all this. Okay, what is going on here? First, right, this is going to be a contentious issue that we need to kind of talk through and kind of drill down in a little bit of some vocab words here. But at first, at first reading, does, he, does authority equal, uh, does head equal authority? When we read this passage, right, is this how you hear it? The authority of every man is Christ. The authority of a wife is her husband. The authority of Christ is God. 
Is that what's going on? Is that what he's meaning when he says head? Because that's, that tends to be how we hear it. In understanding this passage, I want to back up and just say, here's the Greek word, and we're going to kind of break down. There's three ways to read it, right? We're going to, going to put our Bible hats on. The Greek word here is kafale. right? Can everybody say kafale? Kafale, right. Well, you guys have all spoken in tongues. Welcome. You're charismatics. Now, you all know Greek. That means head, right? That's a, it's a word that means head, or it could mean um, source, or it could mean something like the prominence, right? So there's a big discussion, a big debate going on. Head has some value to it, right? When you say, the, the, the way you translate that word is to say, um, this is, uh, the, it's, the, it's a body image, right? And so that's where the head is used. So um, the authority, right? Your head kind of like has authority over your body, right? Like it's where everything kind of comes from. Um, it's the one that makes decisions about what you do with your fingers and toes and how you move and all that stuff. Uh, but is that what's going on when, you, when he uses that word? Is that the, the way he's using that, right? Is the, the way a marriage works, for example, between a husband and wife, does the husband kind of tell his wife what to do and she does everything she, you know, she tells, he tells her to do? Is that the image here of directing authority? Or he could use the word source, right? So the, the source of direction, the source of life in a marriage, is it all come from a husband, right? That, or the prominence, right, is the most visible part of a body, the face or head. Right? It's kind of like what's going on with how, how this word's being used here. I understand and I think there's some value to the, the use of the word authority, I'm inclined to read it like this. I think that the, the, the way that Paul is using this word here is to say the, uh, the preeminence or the focal point or the, um, I gotta read my notes here just to make sure I'm getting exactly right. Um, I think it means something along the lines of responsibility, prominence, and the, the first, um, the, the lead responsibility it's kind of how we would use the word head, that, the way that word is being used here. Uh, because I think the reason, when we use the word head, with like a, we think of like a CEO, like the head of a company, and he's the one who kind of calls all the shots, and everybody does what he wants to do, right? When we think about like the head, um, we can have these uses of a word authority that um, tend to kind of like, are top-down type stuff. Whereas I think the way Paul is using this word in the body image is to say, um, the whole body is united together, right? You can't actually have the head without a neck, <laughs> so to speak. You can't have a head without a heart. You can't have a head without the body. So there's a union between them, and the lead responsibility lies in the, the head, so to speak. But it's not at the diminishing or the degradation of the rest of the body, right? Uh, you have a head without a body, you don't have much life going on to you. <laughs> So there is a union that goes on here, and there is a, pri- there is a, a priority or a, a posturing that creates a relationship, but it's one um, where there are differences that are meant to go together rather than a top-down hierarchy. So are you, what I'm saying here is that when we look at this verse, we're going to take that and kind of read through this verse again. Um, I'm not saying the authority is not involved, but it's an authority of relationship, relationship. Uh, 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 a responsibility, a lead responsibility, so to speak, in the relationship. So, you guys track with me? Are we kind of, we were cool? Okay, so, let's take this phrase, lead responsibility, lead ownership, and apply it here in this passage, right? 
But I want you to understand that the, the lead ownership, the lead responsibility, the prominence of every man is Christ. I want you to understand that the lead ownership, the prominence, the lead responsibility of a wife is her husband. And I want you to understand that the head, that the lead ownership, the lead responsibility of Christ is God. That makes a little bit more of a, of a understanding in this, that makes more sense of this passage where it's like, oh, like that makes sense, right? Like when you think about Christ, well, Christ is in a relationship to save the people that God has sent him to save. So he's the lead responsibility of making that mission happen. Right, and so when you when you say right, the head of uh, or the head of every man is Christ. So it's like the head of mankind is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the one that is the perfect one of all of us ever to live. So in Philippians two says that every man will bend the knee, every person will stand before Christ and bend the knee. That's a, so. Then when you you take that and say, it's not a diminishing of a wife, but it is saying that in the marriage between a husband and a wife that the responsibility to lead is on the husband, right? So there is a, a, a teaching about the, the, the relationship that's going on here. Now, I want to draw you into, you guys like theology debates? You guys love theology debates? I know you guys wake up every morning, you're kind of like, ooh, how can I draw into another theology debate? First of all, the word theology talks about the, st- the study of God's things, right? The study of God. So, a big debate that's been going on is about, actually about this passage, is about what's uh, called the Trinity. I'm just going to lay out the Trinity real quick. The Trinity is the, the teaching, the Christian teaching, that God is eternally one being in three persons. Eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and an eternal one God, three persons. So if you're trying to be like, okay, how, I'm one person in one body, and we're saying God is one being in three persons, how does that work out? Welcome to the last 2,000 years of church history. <laughs> We've been talking about this for a long time. But it is clearly what the Bible teaches. There are three persons, one God. There is not like a uh, God and then two other people that he created to work with him. Right? All three persons, one God. This verse has been read to say that God the Son eternally and forever has submitted his will to God the Father. I don't think that's what this passage is saying. Now here's... I know you guys like, you're like, what does this matter? Like, I, it's, it's problematic to say that God has two different wills in the Trinity. God has one will, and it is one will to accomplish the glory of God. Now, God the Son eternally is begotten of the Father, so they're always in a relationship. The reason this verse is critical is that when it says, and the head of Christ is God, you see the end of verse 3 there? Notice it's not God the Son and the head of God the Son is God the Father. It is the head of Christ, the promised one to accomplish the will of God. This is Christ, the, the Son of God, in what's called the economy of the Trinity, right? The tr- economic Trinity is like how God, works, how God works out in time in the history of redemption. I realize this is like all like major Bible knowledge and we're doing like a major Bible, uh, Bible dive, but the economy of the Trinity is that God the Son takes on, the, uh, takes on human nature, becomes Jesus Christ, lives the perfect life, dies in our place, and accomplishes what God, the tr- God has sent him to do. In that relationship, he is submitted to the Father. But that is, a, so that is a relationship that is outside of the very nature of God. So it's how God does his economy, so to speak, right? You got God in this house all eternity. He, he, he lives and moves and behaves 
Jesus Christ takes the will of God and lives it out in the street, so to speak, to accomplish what he's, what he's sent him to do. Right, are we, are we tracking here? Are we, are we, we're getting lost. So, <laughs> I'm just trying to say, in this passage, the reason that's important is that what people will say is that women are created to reflect Jesus Christ in his relationship to God the Father, and men are created to reflect God the Father and his relationship to the Son. And the reason women should submit to men is because Jesus Christ, for all eternity, has submitted to God the Father. Right? I don't think this passage is supporting that. I think this passage is giving us a picture of how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit engage in our life in saving us, that men and women are designed to reflect. But I don't think you need to ground it and mess with the Trinity doctrine. Right? We tracking? Okay. We're going to pick up here. Here's what this means for us. Christ is the ruler and preeminent responsibility of all mankind, right? A wife is united to her husband in purpose and mission, and he, shares, he bears the responsibility of the front lines of leading their marriage together. In practice, what that means, husbands should be the first repenters, husbands should be the ones leading their family to grow in grace, Husbands should be the ones leading their families as the first among sinners to say, I need Jesus more than you, and I need to repent, right? It's just going to drill down some real practice. That means that husbands should be leading their wives humbly and coming under them to serve them. And then the, the final way this works, Christ is united to God's purpose. He is the one that is leading the mission of God to seek and save us and to build his church. So... Head, uh, the purpose of headship in verse 3, right? Just, I know we're kind of drilling down here, but the purpose of headship here is what headship means is it always comes under and serves those around them. Headship means that you are coming under and serving the people that are weaker than you, right? It is just a, a cultural and historical fact that men by physical design and then by cultural pressures or dynamics have always had more strength and power than women. Not saying that's right, I'm just saying that's just a reality of the world. And it's interesting in this whole book, in the book of 1 Corinthians, the way strength is used, it's always confronted when it's used for its own purposes. Paul is regularly over and over and over again through 1 Corinthians saying, your strength, your power, your privilege is for the purpose of serving those around you, right? And so, the function of being, quote, the head of a family, being a man, is to take your masculinity and take on the responsibility of serving those around you, specifically those without, with lesser power, lesser strength, or lesser privilege. So, we see this first, you see how Paul plays this out in Ephesians 5. Can, I, can we draw this, this, uh, these verses here? Ephesians 5, verse 25 Paul says, we got that? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, right? You see the way in which Christ lives out his authority, his responsibility, his leadership for his bride, for, the, um, for his girl, so to speak, us, is that he gives himself up for them. He takes on the responsibility. He takes on the ownership he leads so as to promote her over himself, right? That's how Jesus loves the church. He doesn't claim what's rightly his and tell her what to do. He comes under and serves her, right? That's the posture of masculinity. 
verses 23 to 24, verses right before that, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Again, this head word, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is what Paul is calling us to with masculinity. Masculinity is about taking our strength and support and providing for sacrificially responsible and taking on sacrificial responsibility for the flourishing of others. Femininity, to take this, to take from these words, to be a woman, to be feminine, is about nourishing and supporting leadership so that those in need around you are enlivened by goodness and provision. Right? The church is a place where grace grows and changes lives. And women are embodied that dynamic in their femininity, whether you have kids or not, that's not the point. To be a woman is to seek to support the leadership, seek to support the flourishing of those around you. And to be a man, to be masculine, is to seek to give yourself to the sacrificial responsibility of caring for others. That's not, that is very different than what we would expect, isn't it? Right? There is a cultural expectation. Be a man, you lift weights, you do certain things, you know, like all that stuff. I don't know. To be a man, you can be big, small, overweight, underweight, bald, lots of great hair. You can have a girlfriend, not have a girlfriend, have a wife, not have a wife. Whatever your life story is, you can still, as a man, live out taking on the sacrificial responsibility for those around you. You can do that. As a woman, it doesn't matter whether you like pink or you like black. It doesn't matter if you, you know, are into girly things and I don't, I, I don't have girls, so I literally have no idea like what, uh, what the girls are, like what girls do. I'm married to one, so I like them, you know, <laughs> but like, I, I don't know girly things, right? I have a brother. I have, I have no girls in my life apart from my wife. I don't even know how I managed to get a girl to like me, but girly things, whatever the girl stuff is, right? It doesn't matter if you're like ultra feminine or like ultra, you know, hikers or whatever, right? Like it it doesn't, those things don't matter. Whether you're married or not, as a woman, you can always take on the posture of nourishing and supporting those around you, specifically those in leadership around you or your own leadership organization, nourishing and supporting those in need around you to enliven goodness and flourishing and provision. I hope that what I'm, I'm laying out for you is that these verses are not oppressive verses for both men and women. They're underneath them, Paul has a theology that is enlivening our picture of what it means to be a man and a woman. So, I, what I want to draw, draw us to, and I want to apologize, we might go a little long on the sermon. I really, we're, we're going to be okay, I promise. Our bodies... This is a cultural issue that we're going to have to, we're going to talk about in a second, but our bodies do not lie to us. Men and women are created different and it's good. And there is a purpose for that difference that is not merely just to make more babies, right? That's not the purpose of just being men and women different. God could have made us in an infinite number of ways and he chose to make us men and women because he likes to spice up life and make it interesting and how we live out a life that reflects what the love of God looks like. Okay, so we're going to pick up here in verse four. We have only talked about verses one, two through three right now. We're going to pick up in verse four. I promise we're going to kind of go through these a little bit more quickly. 
What I want to do is next, that not only does the gospel define our gender, the gospel confronts our gender, okay? Here's what I want to do. Before we read these verses, I want to give you a little bit of some context to understand what's going on because at first, at, at face value, these can feel very kind of strange verses like head coverings, hair, long hair, do you shave, do you not shave, like all that. Okay, let me understand. I want to remind you, all through 1 Corinthians, one of the big issues is that Corinthian pe- the people in Corinth um, who were members of the church were also at times going and worshiping in the pagan temples. Also, people who were pagans and worshiping Zeus and all that stuff had converted and come to Christ and they were trying to figure out their life. So you had this weird kind of dynamic going back and forth. And so in, their back, in the background of their mind, they had temple worship versus Christian worship, right? They had those dynamics going on. Temple worship versus Christian worship. In temple worship, what was very common is that you would go to the pagan temple and that there would be cult prostitutes there, right? So men and women for both men and women, uh, respectively. And in that context, men who had their heads covered and women who had their heads uncovered were signaling that they were available for sex, right? So you go to the temple, guy's got his head uncovered, he's a, temp- he's a temple prostitute. You go to the temple, you got a woman head uncovered, or head covered, that means she's a prostitute for the temple. Additionally, in that context, if a woman had her hair shaved off, that indicated that she was celibate. So, you put that into the mix of this, that's going to that's gonna feed the background of how we read these passages, because he's going to start talking about head coverings, and I want you to understand, behind the head coverings language is not like, do you wear a hat in church or not? Behind that practice was, are you sexually available or not? Right? That changes how you read this passage, doesn't it? Okay, so, verses 4 to 7. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, right? So, background, guy covers his head, that's saying he's sexually available and speaking in church. That's kind of bad. Just not a good idea. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, right? Same thing. She's communicating these innuendos in the worship of the church. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head, just the same as, as if her head were shaven, right? So the, what that verse is saying is that she's celibate and married, right? Marriage is designed for the enjoyment of sexual life between a man and woman. Not a, it's not uh, God's design for either party to be celibate in marriage. So that's why he's saying it dishonors the head, right? She's refusing um, the, one of the major dynamics of marriage. But if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So that's what's going... When we read that passage with that sexual innuendo dynamic in the background, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Otherwise, you read that and you're just kind of like, what is up with shaving your head, not shaving your head, covering your hair or not covering your hair? Like some, some folks have come from church traditions where you like... Uh, there's an imposed, like, women always wear, like, a thing over their head in worship, right? Like, I don't know, like, we lived in Pennsylvania for a while. All the Amish and Mennonite women, they always got this, like, head doily thing going on. I don't know. I, I recently heard from somebody, I, can, I could not for the life of me remember, they visited a church, and they were handing out, like, shawls for women to wear over their heads when they go into church. That's where that's, this is grounded in. I think that's a un- misunderstanding of this entire passage entirely, because... The, the application of this passage to our culture would be, 
Um, if I were up here and I had Tinder on my phone as a married man, like, first of all, you shouldn't have Tinder on your phone. It's a horrible app. Secondly, you, if you're married, you should especially not be having Tinder on your app or be wearing like Pornhub shirts or something like that. Like, that's what this is saying, right? Like, you're creating like cultural content, like you're communicating a sexual liberty that's not appropriate, not only for Christians in general, but for your marriage state, right? That's, that, that, should we read this? That's how they did it. I'm not sure, you know, they didn't have phones back then, so they didn't, they had head coverings, you know? Same, but it's a similar dynamic of how this is playing out, right? So, he is confronting how they engage worship. You should come to worship, and you should live your life as a Christian in such a way as to honor God with your body. Married, not married, male, female. The cultural expectations of how you lived out your gender were inappropriate. They continue to be. So, verse, we're going to pick up verse 7. Here we get in some other... It's just like a fun passage. Like It's just like left and right. It's just punching us one way to the next. Next passage... Verses 7 to 12, for a man not to, not, uh, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was, created for woman, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority in her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, the woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Sorry, that is a tongue twister of a passage to read. (laughs) Okay, Uh, before we get all bent out of shape by this passage, I want to talk about the word glory. The word glory is basically the manifestation. What that means is the manifestation of God's attributes in, in, in general, right? When we say we, we love the glory of God. It means we love God showing us who he is, right? We love God showing us who he is. So when God creates mankind, when he creates man, he is showing that he is a God who loves to send us on adventures to, cre- to create, to explore, to create culture, to create life, to accomplish his mission to take dominion over the earth, right? He is a adventure-seeking, creative, loving God. And that's why he creates man. Go do it. Then he creates woman, and woman is created as the glory of all that mankind could ever be, right? So it's not a, a diminishing, like, women are under here. Like, men are the big cheese, and then you get these women that kind of circle around, right? That's not the way this is designed. To, that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is God gave, a, gave man a purpose, and he cannot accomplish it or even be true to it unless he has woman. And woman is designed to, to, to match and complement that purpose, right? Man is more of a man. Men are more men because of women. And women are all the more women because of the differences they have with men, right? She is made to be the glory of the purpose of mankind, of man, to create life, flourishing, culture, goodness in the world, right? And then here again, we see Paul addressing their culture. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. I just want, to, I just want us to appreciate that while we can read these and be kind of like, what is the deal here? I just want to remind us, in their culture, women were subjected. They were low, they, 
Women's testimony was not even admissible in court. They were lower than slaves in the hierarchy of the culture. Paul is addressing them and saying there's differences between you, but there is equality of value. Right? Women have inherent value as created in the image of God. Men have inherent value created in the image of God. And so the Bible despises any degradation of women, any diminishing of their value. Right, just, just to put this in perspective, it was even the um, anatomical differences between men and women. Women were viewed as being basically inverted and perverted versions of men. Right, they they were not um, they were not seen with value. And so when Paul addresses this, see verse, I just I, there's a there's a a gospel glory in verse eleven. Woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. You need each other. You're created to flourish together. Men and women are designed to complement and be glorifying God together. They both equally glorify God. Right? That, that there is something that says the great value that men and women have as gendered, created beings to glorify him. So here, let's finish up this, this little paragraph here, and then we'll swing back and make some comments. <clears throat> Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Again, remember the, the, the sexual innuendo part of that. Does not nature itself teach that a man, that if a man wears his, his uh, wears long hair, it is disgraceful for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Again, these are biblical principles of Paul, theological realities that Paul is laying out to be, have cultural practices. So he's not saying if you've got long hair and you're a guy, that you're now sinning, Right? The purpose of this is just to say there are cultural ways in which we live out what it means to be men and women that have significance, right? And I would just say I, I looked generally like across the globe. I looked internationally. Uh, generally, women have longer hair. I'm always jealous. <laughs> like, I just wish that I had something that I could comb, but I don't have anything, you know? And then women have all these long... I, we had some friends stay with us recently. Like, they, I don't even know what it's... I, I've never... That doesn't maybe my own... You, Little girls with having to like braid, like comb out the the knots in hair. I've never done that ever. Like I, so I just you know just a part of, and I'm not going to do it for you by the way. That'd be creepy and weird. Um, so this is something that has significance for our uh, significantly confronts our culture today, right? I just saw this last week that Mattel is re- releasing. Um, gender-neutral or gender-inclusive dolls. I'm all for men and w- boys and girls playing with dolls. That's, I don't care. That's good, creative, all that stuff. But there is a cultural push to say gender is actually a limitation. The idea of gender is a limitation. It's a hindering. It diminishes the ability of children or people to realize their full identity. And the Bible just says, No. You were created to be a man or a woman, and it's good. Your body does not lie to you. Your culture is programming us to think that somehow, like, it's best if we were just, like, um, androgynous creatures. Actually, some, science, some, some cultural historians have said the beginning of an end of a culture is when they start moving towards androgyny. You see that with the Roman Empire. They start celebrating androgyny, that, there's, that men and women... That, that's bad 
both ways, celebrating androgyny, and then soon comes the decline of the Roman Empire. I'm not sure that's the only reason, but certainly a, or a philosophical contribution to it. Um, we need to be aware of this because there is going to always be a cultural undertow to pull us away from the celebration of masculinity and femininity that the Bible has for us. There's just a cultural dynamic that we are constantly going to be facing. It's okay that we live in a culture that is confused about this. Did you realize this verse just assumes that people are coming to Jesus from a confused background, right? I actually like that, right? This should also, if you're, if you're here with like messed up sexual background or this is the last week or today, you're, you're confused about what's going on or you realize that you're, you're, you've been using your, um, your masculinity, your femininity all wrong, this verse not only assumes that you're in the church, it assumes that you're a part of the life of the church. Did you pick up on that? Versus, verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head uncovered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. People who have messed up understanding of what it means to be men and women are standing up and praying and prophesying in the church. So I want you here. You got messed up background? Welcome to the club. We want you here. We want to be growing in what it means to follow and, and image and live like Jesus together. So if you've got messed up stuff that you're trying to work through, gender, confusion, all that, let's work through that together in the life of the church. We assume that you're here, and we want you to be a contributing part of this, right? Th th this, is, this verse assumes that you've got messed up issues, but you're still a part of the, great, the community of grace. That's what we want to be. Other thing that this, this, this verse reminds us of is that we want to celebrate, um, in a, specifically in, in Christian circles, um, women have not been thoroughly engaged for discipleship and growth in general. Right? Generally, it's like, let's do the Bible studies, let's get the men trained. Women, do your tea time. <laughs> uh, that's, not, like, we don't, that's not the way this verse engages us. It engages us to say, Honor God and your femininity. Honor God and your masculinity. I'll tell you, if you, uh, we went to, back in May, we went to the Chaos Conference down at Seven Mile Road. It was fantastic. Man, it, I seriously cannot remember a conference I've enjoyed as much, and it was only one day, and all we had was like tacos for lunch. It was awesome. But they held out this vision of women empowered for leadership and, um, and mission in the life of the church to be forces for gospel advance, right? Not saying we're going to train our women to be elders. Elders are the dads of the church. Can't have, that's not the way the church is designed. But women empowered for leadership. So like right now, I'm running a track with five ladies in the church called the Chaos Track to strengthen them and empower them for mission and life in the church. Because we want theologically trained, gospel-forced women to be unleashed in our city. We want that, to be feminine women who just kill it for Jesus, right? I am so excited for how God's going to continue to grow us in this area. And I, we want not just women who are theologically robust, strong women for Jesus. We want, we want to celebrate that men as well are glorifying Jesus in a way that is contrary to the culture, right? I, on this stuff, I could just go on and on about everybody in this room, how I see God using you and strengthening you and your life, and how you're glorifying God, man or woman, I'm really going late on time. <laughs> so we're going to move on, because we want to finish this passage out with a few comments that not only does the gospel confront our culture, our gender, the gospel defines our gender, but we want to just finish out by just kind of doing a 
kind of set a few thoughts through this passage, the gospel empowers our gender. We've kind of been talking about this already. We're going to finish this out. The gospel empowers our gender. I just want to draw you back to the beginning of this passage. <coughs> Verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see, we want men and women that imitate Jesus Christ and how we live our life together. Just as Jesus in verse 3, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Just as Jesus submits to the will of the Father to die in our place under the wrath of God, that he might create a community of people that are life-giving forces of God's redemptive work in this world. We want to be men and women that take on the responsibilities of those around us, for the flourishing of those around us, empowered by Jesus, who does both for us. Right? Jesus actually lives out this whole picture of what it means to be a man and a woman. God designed us as men and women to magnify Jesus in our life together. I know that we have all come into this with maybe some weird background of how we understand this and the hierarchy of men and women. So can we throw up this picture here of these umbrella things? I don't know if you guys have ever seen this stuff. Do we get that slide in there? Drew, did we get that slide in there? Yes, there we go. Boom. Has anybody ever seen this before? Is this familiar to anybody? Yeah, this is all weird stuff. All right, so actually that, I cut off that picture there. There's actually another umbrella above Christ God. Uh, so on the left, that's called patriarchy. Um, this is where uh, women are subjected under men. And this, you'll notice that one thing that's missing from this is the church um, on the left. I'm not sure if anybody came into this room with that as a background for how you've understood men and women to relate. But it's, uh, it, it does not empower women for ministry, and it burdens men with more than what God has called them to. Um, on the right, this is uh, a, another version of that, which I would disagree with as well, although I appreciate some of the dynamics. It's a little hard to see on the screen. You see God over the church, which is in Christ, and men and women are equal, agree with that, on mission for the world. That's kind of how that flows. What that picture misses is that there are differences between how men live out the masculine mission for God. And there are differences with how women live out the feminine mission for God. There is equality and value, but there are differences that God has designed us to live out to glorify him. We can take that down. I just want to address that and say both those are bonkers and you shouldn't believe those. And don't get your theology from the internet. That's just a bad idea in general. <laughs> so... Um, we tend to get all kind of bent out of shape, maybe because we're Americans and evangelicals, about the whole authority issue. But I hope you see that in this passage, power and strength is used to come under to support and strengthen. So, men, how are you in your life as a man in Christ, how are you going to use your strengths and gifts and power to take self-sacrificial responsibility for the people around you. Men, how are you going to take responsibility at the cost of your own preferences and time, sleep and desires? How are you going to take those sacrificial hits to flourish, to serve those around you? How are you going to do that? That's what masculinity is, right? You like poetry. You like lifting weights. It doesn't matter. You can be masculine in both of those and how you come under and serve those around you. Ladies, how are you going to use your strengths and gifts and power 
to encourage and strengthen those around you for the flourishing of the gifts of God in their life? How are you going to orient towards the flourishing of others so that you are a nurturing presence, a safe presence? I would just say one of the one of the ways in which I love the way God's using the ladies in our church is that they are safe people, safe women, for women who have been through horror and tragedy and trauma that can be a safe place for them to be nurtured into life and health in Jesus. I've seen it happen. I love that God uses our women in that way. I think that is a specifically feminine gift, not that men can't do it. Women just tend to be better at it. How, ladies, can you be using your strengths and gifts to encourage and empower those around you. Men, how can you be taking self-sacrificial responsibility for the people around you? Husbands, how can you be specifically this week laying your life down for the needs and desires that your wife has, even if that means that you have to like listen to her for a long time? Right? Ladies, how can you be living out your life and your marriage so that your husband is strengthened for leading your family? You know, these are difficult questions to answer. <laughs> they're going to take some time in prayer before the Lord. And they're not easily, like, you don't just like, oh, I'm going to make dinner, you know, or, oh, I'm going to pop some popcorn, right? They're hard. But that's that life-transforming dynamic of how we worship God together. Okay. we want to end on is that Paul is addressing how men and women love and follow and glorify Jesus in their worship together. In a worship context, I want us to understand that our gender is about worshiping God. It is good that you were made a man or a woman to be masculine or feminine. Not that like you have to do the stereotypes, but you are, if you're a woman, you are feminine. If you're a man, you are masculine. You were designed that way to glorify Jesus in our life together, to make him look great, to take on responsibilities and love other people around us, right? We want lives that live out of the power of Jesus to glorify him and to make him look great. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us by your power to glorify Jesus, to make him look great, whether we're men or women, to look at each other as men and women strengthened by your power to make you look great. Father, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit right now to make Jesus look great. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.